Hello, everyone. Robert Walker here, along with Caleb Pierce, and we are Sheep Things Podcast. Our goal with this podcast is to get down to the basics with industry leaders, associations, breeders, owners, vets, suppliers, and anyone else we can find to hear their stories and firsthand experiences. Hopefully, we will ask the right questions to see what makes them successful, how they got started, and what they see for the future of the sheep industry. We hope to have something new weekly that we can share, so stay connected to our website, Facebook page, or sign up to follow us on a podcast service to get updates as they are published. Stay tuned as we try to share our learning experience with you all as we dive into the sheep industry together. got something very special uh, today the next couple episodes we have a 30-year Katahdin breeder uh, Lisa and Larry Weeks of Waynesboro Virginia and uh, we got them to come on and and talk to us about their background and uh, how they got started in sheep and what they've done over the last 25-30 years and how they've progressed and how they select breeding stock and uh, a little bit of everything so I hope you enjoy this episode uh, with Larry and Lisa Weeks. Well, Larry and Lisa, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to, to join us and tell us a little bit about your operation. Well, it's been quite a journey. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, why don't you start off by maybe walking us through that journey and maybe you guys can both tell us a little bit about each of you and um, kind of your stories and, uh, and then how sheep have kind of become part of that story. Well, a lot of the story I consider uh, blind, stupid luck. Um, <laughs> Lisa was in college and put in an application for a summer job with DuPont in Wilmington, Delaware, and they actually sent her to the plant in Waynesboro where I worked. And they were having a special event and had overtime in the evenings, and she worked overtime and I worked overtime, and that's how we met. Wow. It was just wow. a fluke that we even met because she's from Western Kansas. And I, I was going to Kansas State at the time. So after she finished college and moved back here to Virginia with me, uh, she wanted a horse. She missed showing horses and she wanted a horse really bad. So I said, I'm not going to pay an expensive uh, amount of money to board a horse. We'll buy some land and put up a building on it and put the horse on it and then maybe later on build a house. Yeah. So we started looking at land, and land was super expensive. And I said, shoot, for a few more thousand dollars, we could just buy a whole farm. <laughs> and so there was two farms for sale, one on the south side of the road, one on the north side of the road. We looked at both of them, and we bought the one on the north side because it had a giant bank barn built in 1890, had two big additions on it. They could probably have fed 200 cattle at one time in there. Wow. An old farmhouse that, that you could sit in the living room and the wind would whip the newspaper with everything shut up. It was so drafty. <laughs> so we, we didn't have kids. We didn't have any animals. We rented out the barn to a hay dealer. So we were going to raise cows and horses. And a guy I worked with gave me a couple uh, Suffolk ewes that were bred to polypays. They had mastitis, so we knew we was going to have to bottle feed the babies, but we didn't care. We thought it was cool. So that was in January of 1990 that we moved to the farm. And in April of 1990, I went to sheep shearing school. And the uh, Reader's Digest version is the first sheep I tried to shear, she kicked and drew the, drove the shears into my right eye, and actually one of the blades punctured the eyeball. Oh, so, wow. Oh, my God. So I was in the hospital for six days taking antibiotics that could kill a horse. And uh, uh, the prognosis was that I would be lucky to see any sh uh, shadows or anything with my vision. But four weeks later, I went in the doctor's office and I could see 2020 out of that eye. Oh, wow. And to this day, he still swears it's a miracle uh, because of the damage to the eye and losing fluid in the eyeball. And so when I was recuperating, 
I read an article in the Sheet magazine, which back in was like a newspaper. And on the front cover was a picture of Laura Callan, who is now Fort Myer. And she was managing a uh, Katahdin flock for Heifer Project. And their story was about- In the, Arkansas. In Arkansas. And uh, the basis uh, headline was sheep that do not need shearing. And I thought this is a career change <laughs> because <laughs> there's no way I can go near a set of shears. And back then, Katahdins were a very rare breed. Um, we actually ended up getting a ram from uh, Laura, uh, and she was coming to Roanoke for an event. So she hauled him here, and we got four ewes out of uh, New Jersey from Henry Lecadero. And that was about the closest people that had Katahdins to us wow. at that time. And, uh, of course, we uh, joined the association, and we started going. The first few meetings, it probably wasn't eight or ten people at the meeting. Yeah, you know, and we were fortunate. We got to meet Charlie Brown, who was managing the Peel Farm. And Laura was very instrumental. Her and uh, Ed. Martzoff. 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 Yeah. And they actually uh, got the name out and, and, and got to promotion of the breed of Katahdin. Because back then, if you took these lambs to the stockyard, a lot of times uh, they were sold as sheep, uh, I mean, as goats, because people thought they were goats. <laughs> wow. Uh, because they had no idea what they were. And what, what time frame was this? What was the this early 90s. Early? Yeah. 90, we, we got our first sheep in 1990. So we were talking to Mark. Ain't it amazing that if the Heifer Project never existed, the Katahdin breed probably wouldn't That's possible. It is possible. That is very possible. Wow. Um, so anyways, uh, over a period of uh, two or three years, we finally got enough Katahdins that we sat down and discussed. And our, our business plan become that we got rid of everything that wasn't 100% Katahdin. And we were going to raise purebred registered Katahdins and try to be one of the best uh, seed stock producers uh, in the breed. And we were going to do that through genetic selection. Uh, there was a lot of people at that time that were actually doing the uh, upgrading with other breeds. Mm -hmm. um, since we had the open book and a lot of people were doing that, but we felt like we wanted to do it through genetics. And back then, uh, uh, mature you probably weighed 120, 125 pounds. A ram maybe weighed 130, 140. Wow. So that was the knock on the Katahdin was that they were too small. And so that was the challenge back in those early days was getting some size in them. And today, uh, I'm more, uh, wanting to speed the growth to mm -hmm. get them up to full size faster, uh, to get them to finish to market. especially, uh, the, uh, ones that are going to market is I'd like to get them up faster. Seems like it takes a Katahdin about two years to get full size. Mm -hmm. Do you agree? Yeah, I agree. Nice yeah. Too. Mm -hmm. And I also think that, um, that they get to the same size in that two year period, kind of not really, I mean, their adult size, I think is kind of set in stone for the most part. Uh, and I think they get there no matter what their management is kind of, unless they're just totally starved to yeah. death. Um, I mean, I've tried, I've experimented with several different, things and, and they they always seem to get to their adult size no matter what i do yeah. to them prior yeah I agree. pretty adaptable sheet mm -hmm. so so how many so how many acres are you guys did you, did you still got the one farm you still got the old barn the old barn would be uh, cool in uh, july of 93 lightning struck the old barn and in an hour oh, it was on the ground oh wow it was over half full of hay from the guy that was rented out as a hay dealer. And uh, I had just purchased about $5,000 worth of cattle handling equipment because we also had Angus cattle and all that burn up in it. And I didn't have insurance on that because I didn't realize it wasn't covered. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, man. But uh, yeah, a guy was telling me a few years ago about this big fire. And I said, you don't know what a big fire is. And he says, 
what do you think a big fire is? I says, a barn fire. Because I said, I had people over five miles away tell me they saw it. Wow. I mean, it was it was a monster fire. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, that was devastating. Uh, so we built a, a new barn that's uh, 40 by 120, and it's actually in three sections. And the two end sections are closed up, and the middle section is open. And that way it uh, qualifies for a lower insurance rate. Uh, and it gives us a lot of flexibility. And that's one of the things I would tell new people that come here and talk about stuff is you got to be flexible. You know, uh, we move stuff around several times a year just because of the different tasks that we're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, like before lambing season, we build the lambing pens and everything. And then after that, we tear it down to make room to maybe put up a chute to run the sheep through. Uh, yeah, I kind of agree. I, I hear people all the time uh, saying, you know, I can, I can build my stuff cheaper than I can buy the portable stuff. Yeah, you can, but you know, being able to move stuff around and change it and make your facility investment multi-purposes, mm -hmm. there's, there's some value yeah, to that too. If you to expand too, then you have a hard time expanding if it's all set in stone. If you don't have some flexibility built into it, um, you can't really expand very well. Very true. Of course, if you grow, if you go broke buying all that expensive stuff, you can't expand. So it's kind of a, <laughs> a little bit at a time. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Uh, well, we have a cost share program in Tennessee, so it that helps a lot. And um, and I'm I'm thinking Virginia has some kind of deal too, don't? Not you? as I know of. Hmm. I was thinking some guys down. Uh, in the southwest corner in that Scott County area was telling me that they had some programs. It might be tobacco money. Yeah, that's what our that's what ours is in Tennessee is is old yeah. tobacco money. And the state the state uh, put it into a cost share program to educate us, uh, to make us better, more efficient. We have to take a class every three years to stay in the cost share mm -hmm. program. Uh, and it's and it's for certain equipment to make us more efficient, make us better producers. You know, that's an investment back into us with the tobacco money. Yeah. Yeah. There's no tobacco money out here in Idaho. Um, if, if, if we had some sort of program for sagebrush, then, uh, then we'd, we'd have more money, money, but yeah, no. I mean, you, you even have to buy yep. your own water. So that's, uh, pretty tough. uh yeah. So when you guys first started with sheep, I mean, it sounds like you guys just had kind of a, a few and, and maybe the, it wasn't your plan to really like get into sheep, but kind of got there. Um, how has your goals changed over the years or cause you guys talked about how you sat down and kind of developed your business plan to, to raise, you know, top quality registered, um, Katahdin's. um, how have your goals changed at all over the years as far as flock size or, or market? Um, or have they stayed the same? They haven't changed a lot. You know, they've been tweaked a little bit. Um, of course, like I say, in those early days, the sheep were kind of small. Yeah. And so basically we were really looking at size where now I think we've actually, uh, uh have ours is plenty big. Uh, I want a faster growth, but we're also looking at the, all those other things. Yeah. Um, we actually were at the forefront of uh, parasite testing because during the 90s we had a feeling like Katahdin breeders that we didn't deworm our sheep as much as the wool breeds mm -hmm. you know I had a, I worked with a guy and he had 200 sheep and man he was he was deworming them every uh three or four weeks yeah and 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 you we did ours maybe four times a year in those early years, and then finally we went to what's called you know strategic deworming when you did it in the spring and the fall, and worked well. So we always had this uh, uh, feeling that we had parasite resistance, but we just couldn't prove it. Mm -hmm. So then um, uh, Martha Muberg and uh, Dave Redwine got together and put the pressure on Virginia Tech to start doing some studies with, uh, with Katahdin sheep and with parasite resistance. And so uh, we actually sold them some uh, rams and sheep uh, into their flocks. 
in Virginia Tech uh, eventually caved in, and that's how the test at Glade Springs got started. And uh, the whole thing behind that was to uh, prove parasite resistance was a genetic trait. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, we've expanded uh, uh, the criteria that we use for selecting our uh, breeding stock. Uh, and we're very, uh, we have a high standard of if something is breeding stock, it's breeding stock. And if it's not, it goes to market. We don't sell it to other breeders. Yeah. And, um, I think that's really helped our uh, success. Uh, one of the things we've done is basically word of mouth or whatever has been good to us. And we've done very little advertising. And so now there's a, a probably the majority of uh, Katahdin breeders don't have a clue as to who we are. Mm. because we haven't advertised. Uh, I've just put my first ad in the, uh, the Herald in the yeah. next issue. Uh, and it's interesting because yeah. we've had people that have, you know, either died or uh, retired out of the business, but it seems like new people have come along. So uh, that's really helpful. And I've always been optimistic about the sheep industry. In day mm -hmm. one, especially east of the Mississippi, because as these farms get broke up into smaller farms, cattle is a volume business. Yeah. And I finally sat down about 15 years ago and was looking at my taxes. My cows were 2x on the expense side, but the sheep were 2x on revenue. So I got rid of the cows. You know, over the next year, we got rid of all our cattle. Uh, so, uh, and a friend of mine, actually, the guy that actually got me into sheep, he made a great point. If you look at numbers, um, cattle will give you, rule of thumb, a cow will give you a calf in a year, then you got to wait two years before that animal becomes productive. Yeah. And sheep, she can have two lambs. A year from now, those two lambs can be productive. So, when you look at the math, you can actually grow a flock or, or generate more income quicker with sheep than you can cattle. Yeah. Yeah. You can look at the math or you can, you can look at it at Robert's field or my field. And I'm sure you guys probably had the same thing where it's like, after a while you're like, Oh boy, that, that grew pretty fast. <laughs> Where'd that go? Where'd that come from? Yeah. One of the first ladies that I met, uh, when I first started, my first event was, a Dorper event that Red Wine uh, give a presentation to about the Scott County mm -hmm. deal, and uh, and I'm like, man, I you know guaranteed pricing, you know year round deal. I kind of like that, you know, and uh, so so I got to going around, you know, all the Dorpers at the sale were sheared. They were all slick and pretty, and when I go to the farms, I'm like, what is that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and uh, you know their feet were terrible, and they, and you know, these guys are having like 30% death loss, yeah. you know? And, and, uh, so, so I found this lady in the meantime in, in Kentucky and talking to her, she had, uh, she had started out doing dorpers with her border collies and people started buying some lambs and, you know, she kind of enjoyed it. So, uh, she started keeping all of her ewe lambs to grow her flock and selling the ram lambs to pay for the feed and the upkeep or whatever. And, and in like seven years, she went from 15, 10, 15 sheep to oh 500, wow. you know? Yeah. Cause when, once you get to, you know, 10, they, you know, if you have twins and half of them are used and every year you're doubling, then once you get to that 50, 60 range and you're adding 50, you know, the next year you're adding hundred. Well, that last year when you got 200, 250 used and you keep half of them, you've, you've done something, yeah. you know? Uh, so you can, you can get the numbers in a hurry. Uh, and, and I kind of did that for a while up to about 150. And then I, then I got to culling, you know, I'm like, wait a minute, you know, let's, let's back up and yeah. here. And I, and I think that's probably what, what attributes our, our growth and the size of our sheep right now is I've always been interested in, in SIP ever since we started talking about it in the late nineties you yeah. know, and really didn't exist for Katahdin's. I think Laura was submitting some data and Virginia mm -hmm. Tech was doing the, the, the math massaging. But um, I think I finally joined in 2000, um, maybe it was 2001, but I submitted like three years before. Mm -hmm. And um, you, you can, 
you can see them out in the field, but until you really look at what they're doing on paper and blend the two, you can't really see the true progress. Right. Yeah. I mean, y'all, you said you had Angus. I did too. And, and I used DBDs and, and my cattle and, uh, you know, my, my cat, I didn't, I didn't get those genetics to sell breeding stock. I got it to sell bigger calves, faster weaning calves at the feeder calf mm-hmm. sale. And, uh, and it worked. I mean, my calves, I, I, once I went that route, uh, my calves were weaning and going to market a hundred pounds heavier, you know, in a, in a shorter period of time. And it was, it was pretty awesome. So I knew yeah. it worked, you know, we know it works. I mean, we wouldn't have dairy cattle like we do, if it, you know, they wouldn't be milking like or pork or chickens. I mean, anything. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so genetics work, you just got to build That's them. That's right. So, so in those early days, um, you know, when, when NSIP was kind of just starting to be adopted, um, how long did it, did it, take for you guys to really start to see a difference like was it within a year or did it take a few years worth of data because i mean now there's what eighty five thousand or, or more katahdin lambs in the database yeah. so you, you have a lot of data um yeah. how, how long did it take before you started seeing real impact from that data early on well it's hard it's really hard to tell because we were so early into the program with katahdin's and, 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 you know, putting the database together, mm-hmm. I think the key for us was just always calling out that bottom 10%. Gotcha. And that's really where you see the progress because at that point you're, you were really only seeing your, your in flock EBVs. You mm-hmm. weren't really seeing right. the, the, the cross potential, um, the cross flock potential at that time where that I think you can see it today. Mm-hmm. so what uh what year did that what year so i don't i don't guess i've ever asked what year did did we first start doing katahdin's and nsip it was around the 2000s 2001 is when they they started allowing um i think they added the katahdin as a breed in an sip mm-hmm. And I could not tell you the year that we went to land plan. Was it 2010? I don't know. I know those early years, Lisa would sit in here and fuss at the computer because it was very time consuming to enter the data because you had to enter all the data and everything. And you had to do it two or three times in two or three different places. And it was... Oh. Well, the early data, you just sent a spreadsheet to Jim. <laughs> Jim, did, Jim did it all. <laughs> but to answer your question, I think after the first year, we saw a difference because it did identify those poor performers, and we yeah. got rid of them. And, and when you do that, that just helps the a- your flock average improve just because mm-hmm. you're the bad ones. Now, later on, you know, you start refining it uh, to look at other uh, other aspects of what you're trying to achieve. But in those early years, especially in, in one or two years, it identified some uh, really poor performers, and we got rid of those, and and it started making a big difference in the overall flock for performance. Yeah, yeah, I had the same. I had the same experience, Caleb. I, my by by my second year, uh, it it identified one ram one ram was 70 percent of my bottom feeders were all out of one ram Mm -hmm. you know i mean he separate they separated themselves so fast uh within the flock and i didn't have this animal wasn't tied to anybody else so just within my flock i mean he just he it just he self-culled himself yeah. really quick. Yeah, I've seen that with mine too. I mean, just within the first you know year or two. I mean, I submitted back a few years worth of data, and and after you know you submit that and that first year in, I mean, even just on maternal data, you can tell pretty quick which ones are are doing a good job and which ones aren't. So, so I got a question and get get y'all's thoughts because I have a lot of people ask me. Um, so you know, in the beginning. Uh, nobody had NSIP data, you know, everybody started right. from zero and, uh, and now everybody thinks that, Oh, well, they're trying to just push NSIP Rams on everybody. And, and I tell people just 
Hey, just get in and put your data in and see where you're at. See what traits you need before you take off. You know, you might not need uh, a certain trait that you think you're buying. You know, find out what you need first. Do a year or two of data to kind of see where your flock is, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, Because nothing would be worse than to buy something that was, opposite of what you need. Right. To, you know. No, I think that's good advice. I know one of the mistakes I made early on was chasing the hair index. And I got in trouble because I was getting all these babies and they weren't growing very fast. <laughs> yep. So, <laughs> Larry, Larry finally put the foot down and says, I'm not getting rid of these over here. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we had a we had a U lamb and I and I regret we didn't write her number down and track her. But Lisa said her numbers are not great and said I'm going to put her in uh, the not to keep the maybe pile. And I said, listen, <laughs> this lamb at like 90 days was 10 pounds heavier than anybody else. Uh, the rest of the females, she was 10 pounds heavier. She looked great confirmation. I says I am not going to get rid of her i said because she has to have something in there because these are estimated values and so lisa finally right. says you, you know you're right i says you can't go by eye only but i said there comes a time when you say wait a second maybe i gotta take these numbers with a grain of salt yes. now one thing so i started looking at growth more and uh, and it's made a difference <clears throat> luckily it was easy to recover <laughs> One thing we hear a lot of talk about the Angus, and and I used to laugh is at Dupont. I would I I did my own uh, AI, artificial okay. insemination. So I would be sitting at my desk looking through these bull semen catalogs, you know, and these other guys are looking at their hot rod books or their hunting books or whatever. <laughs> I'm over here these books uh, looking at bull semen, and they would laugh. They got to laughing at me when they figured out what was going on, but. The Angus breed, uh, you know, they have such a huge database and they're chasing yeah. the perfect bull and they finally come to the realization there is no such thing as the perfect bull. You know, they tried, they tried cloning, they tried everything. But what you got to do is look at your ewes, where's your ewes at? And this is what NSIP really is the strong suit. You look at your flock and say, this is what I need. You know, maybe I need a little bit more milk, so I go after a ram that has high milk numbers. Or maybe I need a little bit more growth, and you go after that one with growth numbers. You can specify which traits you're really wanting to push. Mm-hmm. And what we did last year, we did something really radical. We got rid of half of our ewes. We called half of our ewes, and we bought two new rams. And uh, we used a ram that we'd used for about four or five years that we really liked. But we bought two new brand new rams just looking at their numbers and what their mm-hmm. strengths were versus our used weaknesses. And so uh, it looks like this lamb crop uh, is going to pay off. Uh, it's just, this is probably the best looking lamb crop we've ever had. So sometimes yeah. you look at NSIP but you also have to use NSIP to make your decisions. And sometimes you just have to bite the bullet. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I've been told I'm flipping my flock too fast. And I'm like, I disagree because I should be raising my je- best genetics yes. every year. <laughs> well, me and Jim in the early days, Jim Morgan in the early days, got into a 20 minute discussion on the phone about, he said, at least every five years, you shouldn't keep a you past five years because the genetics of her offspring are going to be better than her. And I argued that if I have a you that gives me twins year after year after year with no assistance, she's making me money and I'm going to keep her. And we had this discussion and it can go on forever of which do you want to do? Because at the end of the day, I want to make money. <laughs> so, oh, absolutely. It, and it depends on if, you know, I have the room to keep more sheep. So, uh, you know, there, there'll be times where I will keep more and, and just because I got the land and the forage and, you know, I'm not keeping them for genetics. I'm keeping them to sell a lamb or to raise mm-hmm. lamb to eat. And, and I'm not doing it because I like their genetics. I do it because I need the numbers. Yeah. 
And sometimes mm-hmm. it's nice too, if you can keep a proven one around longer, just cause you're going to build more accuracies into those values. Um, and, yeah. and get to really prove out some, some genetics. So, yeah. So, you so, so how big is, oh, well, I was just probably asking the same question you were. So you mentioned you sold about half your use last year. So what is your flock size? Um, like what's, what's kind of been your peak and where are you guys at now? Well, years ago, back in 2007, when the bottom fell out of the market, I told Lisa, I wasn't going to give my good use away. And we went up to a hundred. We kept a hundred ewes and we have about 30 acres of pasture, which Uh five times 30, I should be able to do 150. But we found that was a huge mistake. Our feed costs went through the roof. And of course, corn, corn went super high. So all the feed went super high. And of course, the bottom fell out. We couldn't, we had trouble selling our really nice ewes for $135. So we kept a hundred and we found out that was just too many. So we think 50 is a really good number to run on our pasture. You know, this time of year, I could have 200 out here easy. But I know in July, yeah. <laughs> July it's going to be a different story. But anyways, uh, so last, last fall, I mean, last spring, we had 53 uh, ewes. And we culled uh, down to 27. And then we uh, didn't want to replace have too many new ones coming in this year so we had 43 uh used to lamb this spring mm-hmm. and but we like to keep between 40 and 50 yeah and that seems to be a good number to manage yeah yeah that's nice too when you're focused on genetic selection sometimes i think um you know it certainly when you have more numbers you can maybe you know be a little more picky on which ones stay back and you have to sell a lot of sheep when you have smaller numbers you can kind of keep a little bit better eye on them and and get a little bit better of an idea collect more data um you can watch them and see okay this one's being a good mother this one's not and and i think that you know kind of that mid-range flock size um really allows you to to really dig in and focus and really push genetics um a lot so um what does your guys's feed system look like then are you guys grass only do you guys um do creep feed what does your winter feed look like they're on pasture um by april all the way until january ish pretty much and they may get some supplemental grain in there um if the pastures don't uh, hold up, the, the, we will often start feeding hay in December. Mm-hmm. And definitely when we bring them in in um, February prior to just lambing, we'll, they'll be on uh, about two to three pounds of grain plus all the hay they can eat. Okay. And yeah. then they're, they're fed... Um, grain rations all the way through the first month of um after lambing mm-hmm. and then we swing them off and they go out on grass yeah i don't think we have told people where you guys are located <laughs> waynesboro virginia good deal that way people can you know realize whenever you say what your management practices are kind of the location because we mentioned kansas earlier and we did mention delaware <laughs> uh, so that's a, that's a little different Yep, and our pastures are almost entirely fescue so that's why in july oh, wow. they just want them out yeah yeah i'm in the i'm in that same fescue world and uh, i'm trying something this year actually tomorrow i'm drilling a summer annual my neighbor did it a couple years ago for his cows and uh and i sit and watch this stuff grow and i'm like golly this five acres i could probably run 200 sheep on it all summer long and um so so i'm drilling i'm drilling tomorrow to kind of you know play around with it uh, to keep my animals off my fescue so that i can stockpile longer in the winter to try to get through to maybe february you know uh but but the way I'm doing it now, I can't because they absolutely wear it out, and it and it just it it basically shuts down yeah. in the summer, 
And when it starts to grow back, there's nothing left to grow, you know? So uh, I'm, I'm trying to be a better grass farmer, get my sheep off my fescue, rest it. And uh, right now my, my fescue pastures look better than my neighbor's hayfield, you know? Um, sounds like, so, so maybe I'm getting somewhere. Yeah, it sounds like you need some water to buy out there too. So you can irrigate. <laughs> I live on a river, but I'm, I'm probably a 150 foot elevation above it. So, uh, and the, I've talked to the core, we're, we're all core engineer property, you know, on the river and the lake system. And, uh, and they tell me I can utilize all the water I want as long as I don't pump out more than 10% of the volume. So, uh, if I ever get in that situation, I'm good. <laughs> wow. Good deal. So, um, what does your lambing then look like? You mentioned you guys um, bring, you know, set up some lambing jugs. Um, maybe walk us through, you know, when you, when you start lambing, um, do you pasture lamb and then bring the ewes in? Do you, um, and jug them and how long do you jug them for? And then do you kind of, how do you mix them out or do you just do all pasture lambing? No, we, we have a little lot that's right beside the barn and mm-hmm. we'll bring them into that lot about, a week before they start lambing or two. Yeah. And once they start dropping, then we'll uh, jug them mm-hmm. and they'll um, stay in the jug until I I get that magic pee roll over in my brain that says they're fine. And they can <laughs> <turn> out. <laughs> mm-hmm. the singles obviously only stay in a day or two. Yeah. Twins, maybe a little, a little longer triplets. I usually keep pretty much contained. I'll have a, I'll have their, uh, they'll have their own pen. Uh-huh. Mothers will go off into their own little area. If the oh, weather's nice, if the weather's halfway decent, we'll leave them outside the lamb. But if it's uh-huh. really bad weather, we can run them in the barn. There's an open area. Yeah. What time of year do y'all find the best for lambing for y'all? Well, that's been a challenge through the years. We, you, we so for a while we, we lambed in January and then, um, I started going to the ASI convention and that's always at the end of January. So, um, that would conflict with lambing. So we pushed lambing out to February and sometimes we get into trouble there. So we pushed it. So it's about mid February now. Yeah. Yeah. I I seem to change mine about every other year too. I try something and I'm like, man, I didn't like that. And, And in my part of the world, February is the worst because it's wetter, it's colder. Uh, that's when we get our ice, you know, usually the early part of January is kind of mild and, uh, but man, February is always yeah. my worst. So I try, I try to skip February and go to March. If I don't do late December, early January, I just, I skip February. It's, I don't it's think it matters in Virginia. Day. We've, we've landed in a blizzard in <laughs> January. We've landed in a blizzard in March and, and, <laughs> Land in a heat wave. Yeah, we, we yeah we landed in a heat wave in February one time. <laughs> wow! It, uh, I, I was laughing. I said it don't matter when we're going to land; it's going to be bad weather. <laughs> well, I tried to do a couple years. My wife teaches, so I tried to plan my lambing around her offspring, her her winter uh, break, yeah. <laughs> and uh, that works out pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, we tried an experiment one year that didn't work, but they started lambing right after Christmas. And on like January 2nd, we had a massive blizzard. So we had snow piled up. It was so bad. Lisa and I was trying to drag hay out to the cows. And I says, wait a second. I went and got my wire cutters. I come back. I says, I can fix this fence. He's like, just hay bale. I cut the wire <laughs> and let them come up to the barn and throw the hay out the back door. <laughs> So, so I so I have a question from the beginning. I didn't I didn't stop, but did we ever get a horse? Yeah, yeah, we had. I had three. <laughs> Those are usually the end of the farm adventure for most people. They're, uh, you know, I have, I don't know, I I may have ten or twelve or eight. I I, I lose track every <laughs> year. So we just had a we just had a colt born this past week. So I got to figure out how many does that make. But, uh, you know, I, I enjoy them. Uh, the sheep run circles around the horse business. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I don't yeah, know. I, we got rid of them about four years ago. 
I finally said, we got to get serious. I said, they were expensive pets. Well, you know, I'm in the same boat, uh, at, at the point where I need more pasture and they're in my <laughs> way, most of them, most of them will be gone, you know? And, uh, but right now I still have, uh, they make a good parasite, uh, break with sheep. You know, I, people think it's, you know, everybody says, Oh, you need cattle to rotate in, you know, man, I use horses, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, mm-hmm. and it works. Yeah. Horses uh, eat close to the ground. So that's probably why. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, uh, and I got them. <laughs> the problem is, you know, we don't eat them. So, uh, uh, just, you know, one of those we've deals. had people say that, uh, you can't run horses and sheep together. And we used to have a couple of rams in with the horse. And one summer day we looked out here and the horse was walking along eating grass and the rams were under her in her shaft of eating grass. Getting out of the sun. <laughs> she was walking the sun. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I don't have uh, I've been run. I mean, I never had my sheep not with mm-hmm. horses and, um, you know, personally, I think, I think they kind of help with coyotes. Um, you know, the horses, my most of them are all mares, you know, and, uh, and they seem to get along fine, but most of the time they're never around each other, you know, uh, very seldom are they, you know, all, you know, the sheep move, you know, they just constantly moving. Uh, but the horses kind of, you know, they'll get under a tree or, off in the corner and just hang out all day, yeah. you know, and the sheep are just, yeah, that's you know. true. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so that's, uh, not too bad. So do y'all have, uh, you, you, so in your, your lamb and bar, how big is your barn? How big is your multi-purpose building? I guess 48 by it's 40 by 120. And we had one section that was 40 by 36. It was all horses for horse stalls and one was 12 by 16 that I had an insulated walls, insulated ceiling. And I keep a uh, radiator plug in heater in there. Keeps it about 40 degrees in winter. So stuff doesn't freeze. And uh, last fall, Lisa finally gave me permission to take out the uh, horse stalls. And so we actually turned that into our lambing area. So uh, gave us a lot more room, a lot more elbow room and made lambing a lot easier. Yeah, I'm kind of in that spot where, you know, I've been lambing all out in pasture, but, you know, it's a it's a chore. I got too many to do that with, and it's, uh, especially in the wintertime when it's, you know, it's dark and I get home, it's kind of a pain. So, so I have a hay barn that since I, I've not fed hay in three years now. So, um, so I've got my hay barn that I'm going to convert to uh, a lambing, you know, weaning facility. Uh, so I've been looking at a lot of layouts. I was, at, I was at Henry and Becky's cause I keep thinking my barn ain't big enough, you know, do what I want to do. And I was at, uh, Henry and Becky's last summer and my barn is a little bit bigger than theirs. And they were lambing maybe as many or more ewes than I was. And I'm like, well, heck, if y'all can do it, I can do it. You know, uh, I, I guess I just thought I needed more space than I yeah. did, you know? So do you do you put your uh, your working facility? Do you 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 take it down during lambing and then use you use the same barn to do that? With, uh, well, right? actually, the the handling stuff is now on the north side, and the lambing barns on the south side. So we can we just push it back far enough where we can run the pregnant use in and and shelter if they need to. Gotcha. And then we move them down to the lambing barn once they've uh, lambed. We're trying yeah, to have, yeah, the, the most, I mean, my, my working facilities takes up so much space. I hate taking it down and moving it and, and, and it's at a different location too than where my hay barn's at. So that's, I've been struggling back and forth. Uh, do I just load everything up and trailer my use or well, I just run them down the driveway actually to my hay barn <laughs> and I got an old horse arena back to the horses, my horse arena. Uh, it, you know, it's going to have summer annuals in it and winter annuals. So that my goal is to bring them all. My arena is probably 
275 foot long and probably 110 foot wide. And uh, so I, my plan was to bring all my ewes there and uh, and they can go in and out my hay barn from there. So I could bring the ones in at lamb and the ones that haven't lamb, just send them back out in the arena for the night, you yeah. know, and, and then just kind of wean them off that way. Yeah, so I think that sounds like Got a lot of got a lot of stuff to do between now and then to <laughs> see if it works uh, we've lost caleb he i don't know if he's trying to dial back in he lost his connection or something oh maybe a good. hundred degree weather may have fried his internet okay so <laughs> what kind of grass are you planting i'm doing a uh let's see i think there's five or six different uh i'm doing uh cow peas I'm doing uh, Sudan grass, uh, some daikin radishes. Um, trying to think what else is in there. There's something else, but I don't remember. I copied somebody else's uh, pre-packaged deal you could buy. And um, a lot of legumes, you know. Uh, I've not fertilized my farm in probably 20 years. I'm trying to get smarter about what I plant to get the same benefit. Uh, it drives me nuts to see uh, my neighbor, for example, throw out, you know, a lot of fertilizer and then bush hog yeah. two months later, bush hog all the stuff you grew, you know? Yeah. And uh, so, so I'm trying to get better at uh, uh, using plants for what they're for. And uh, I follow a guy named Gabe Brown out in, He's in North Dakota, and uh, I mean, some of the stuff that he's been able to do out there with no rainfall, uh, just by using different types of cover crops, is, is pretty phenomenal. And uh, so, yeah, that's kind of my, you know, something I've kind of got into in the last couple of years to uh, to try to make my pastures better without uh, being stuck in a fescue rut, you know. So we'll see how it goes. I've, I've done a winter annual and a spring annual. Uh, this will be my first summer and, uh, um, it, it keeps my, uh, pastures, especially if I can get my fescue to last longer and be thicker and just have more browse. Uh, I, I use soy hull pellets, uh, and some cracked corn in a mix during the winter or well, usually about middle of January till probably middle of March, depending on, winter lambing, what part of lambing and gestation they are. Um, but they're still browsing, you know, they're still out on pasture. Yeah. So um, just trying to get more of that, you know, cut more costs and and not have to get out in the wintertime and put out, you know, I hated putting out hay <laughs> in the winter, making a mess, you know. Uh, so it's, it's just, it just seems to be a, a working pretty good for me now. I talked to Doc Kennedy about it a couple of years ago and, um, you know, he kind of gave me some, some advice on my ration and what to look for. And, and so far, I, you know, it's, it's worked, you know, seems to be anyway. That's good. Yeah. Well, I have a tendency to get my use too fat. <laughs> Going in. Well, it, ha <laughs> it happens, you know. Well, I, I kind of try to throttle her back because I said, you don't want to get them too fat because then the lambs are too big. And so this year, I think, I think uh, we actually hit, hit a good balance. They were, they were in good condition, but uh, the lambs weren't too uh, excessively large. Yeah, I, I've done, uh, so I bought these three in one feeders, uh, advantage, I guess they're called advantage feeders now. And, uh, the, you know, I was kind of, I've seen, you know, I know a couple people's got some now and, and have looked at some and, and so I've had them now, this is my third year maybe. Um, so the, the sheep have to kind of take a couple of licks and then come back later, you know, so there's no choking and they don't just stand around. You know, you, you take a fence line feeder and you put out five gallon buckets, you know, a feed, then they all just run to the feeder and they just gobble, gobble, yeah. gobble, gobble. And, and with these feeders, 
you know, I've, I've got them out now uh, fixing to wean my lambs off. And, and you'll see like five or six sheep at a feeder and the rest of them are out browsing. They just constantly rotate through, grab them a couple bites and go, uh-huh. you know. And uh, so with my soy hole pellets in the wintertime and, and my, my cracked corn mix, uh, my ewes are coming through winter way better condition than I ever had with hay. And, uh, and my total cost is the same. And I didn't have to put out hay every night. I didn't waste a third of it. And, um, so, so, so far I'm, I've been really pleased with it. Um, and, and my lambs go to creep better. Uh, cause when I'm, when I was doing fence line feeders, you know, you take a hundred ewes, a lamb ain't got a chance. You know, they're not going to let him get in there and yeah. grab a bite. So with these other feeders, you know, you got three or four ewes standing around and their lambs are with them and they just naturally go, go to eat with their mama. And then whenever you go to pull the ewes off, well, they're already, they're already on it. So work, it works, works really, really good. Glad, glad they invented it and glad I got to buy some. <laughs> I'm sure they're glad you got to buy some too. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. They're, they're, they're cool. proud of it. So, um, so back on, on, breeding stock if um what what do you look at in your flock to choose a ram you know if you got a hundred lambs on the ground and and you're flipping through to pick one out for a breeding stock for you to keep what what are you guys looking for what do you do first well i've last year for example i went into the searchable database and i put in some criteria and that's kind of where where i focused but I want to stay under 0.5 on birth weight, if not lower. Um, I want to. I'm cert- I want a ram that's got over 0.6 on maternal milk. Um, weaning weight. You know, I want weaning and post weaning weight to be fairly high. And I have number of lambs born. I'm not really looking at a whole lot as long as it's um positive number of lambs weaned i'm looking at a lot i want a um at least 10 percent there um fecal egg count i want a large negative and uh hair index can i think as long as it's above a 106 107 then that's and the growth is where i want it that's fine for me right so what is a what is a high negative uh for fecals for you i mean we we had this conversation uh maybe with maybe with uh david that you know wasn't too many years ago a minus 10 yeah. was great you know and now if you're not a minus, you know, 98, you're not, you're not in the top, you know, 5% maybe or something. I, I don't know the exact number, but you know what I'm saying? The, the range right. has really exploded. True. Um, there's not that many rams though that fall in that echelon, but um, I think on weaning, I'm, I'm going to look for at least a negative 70 for post weaning. I'd like to get in the negative nineties for my flock. Because right. I, you know, I do need to improve that to a certain degree. So I'm looking for that super strong parasite resistant ram that can still grow. That's an easy keeper. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the hard thing to find one that's balanced in all those traits. That's, I mean, that's why we yeah. do what yeah. we do, you know. Hey, there's Caleb. <laughs> like I have, a, I have an older ram right now that I've been debating on whether to put him on, you know, out there for NSIP to to look at. But he's he's got one of the higher maternal milk indexes of the of the breed right now, huh. but he's not so fantastic on parasite resistance. I think he's negative, but it's not very much. Yeah. Well, and he's, he's got some great maternal numbers though. Yeah. Well, if y'all decide to sell them, I mean, we, uh, launched, Oh, it was, I think last year, um, about, uh, we, we launched a proven Ram exchange website where people can put on an SIP 
proven Rams to try to try to keep proven NSIP Rams in NSIP because I mean, so oftentimes a Ram that proves out for somebody's system, you know, to not be even maybe what they would hope for might be exactly what somebody else is looking for. So like, you know, that Ram might be, you know, somebody may need to improve on, on maternal weaning weight and that might be just the perfect Ram to fit what they're looking for. And then you get that accuracy and that data, um, staying in the system. So. Right. Yeah. So he's, he's, uh, visiting another place right now. Yeah. So when I get him home, I may do that. Yeah. Yep. So, and maybe, um, maybe you guys already covered this, but shoot for maternal traits. Do you guys prefer twins? Do you guys like triplets? Um, what's kind of your, your goal there? And, and do you use number of limbs born and weaned to drive, um, to drive one or the other? Yes. to all those pretty much. Um, I prefer twins. Mm -hmm. But I understand that to get twins you're get, and get rid of singles, you're going to have to have triplets. Yeah. <laughs> so um, this year we had plenty. We had 14. 14 sets of triplets this year out of, what, 43, 43. ewes. Okay. Last year, however, we had half of our ewes, which was 20, 25, had triplets and one quad, and, one quad. Mm -hmm. and that was way too much for me yeah. <laughs> yeah i don't i just would rather they just have two and be carefree yeah and one thing we do with our triplet mothers is we separate them and like when we turn them out behind the barn we have a separate area for the triplet mothers and that way we can give them a little extra feed but I also feel like it makes it easier for those ewes to find their lambs and the lambs to find their mothers than have to fight to a big mom. Yeah. Yeah. It's, if you can give them that chance to bond, um, you'll, it'll certainly pay off when it comes to weaning time <laughs> or before that, yeah. you know, a ton of bottle lambs. And I, and I've, I should sit out in the pasture and watch them more, but I know I have one, I've, I've had a couple ewes in the last few years, but anyway, the, the ewes that do the best with triplets, I've noticed, will feed those lambs separately mm -hmm. sometimes. Yeah. She doesn't call them all at once. Okay. Huh. And, but I've noticed that she feeds them individually often. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. But that's a behavior. Sheep are funny. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Call them in, they eat for two seconds, and they're done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, guys, that's as good a place as any to stop this episode. And uh, we'll pick back up with a part two with Larry and Lisa Weeks on season one, episode 13 of the Sheep Things podcast. So stay tuned for the next episode. Well, everyone, we hope you're enjoying the podcast so far, and, and hopefully it's sparking some questions in your mind as you're thinking about your operations and thinking about what you can do to improve. Maybe you're new and, and thinking about questions of, of how you can continue raising your sheep and, and things that you're learning and things you still have questions about. Send us an email, uh, podcast at sheepthings.com. We'll get those emails, and uh, we'll, we'll be happy to answer your questions. And uh, after we get a few questions, periodically we'll actually do a podcast uh, with question and answer and we'll answer your questions right on the podcast here so you can listen to our answers and and we're happy to answer any questions that we can and hopefully this podcast is is generating those questions in your mind as you start thinking about it but hopefully it's answering questions too you come to this podcast ready to learn and and uh, i know i'm always learning something new talking with these people people that i've i've known before people that i haven't and you always learn something new. And so hopefully we can help answer your questions, but we can't answer your questions unless you send them to us. So again, that's podcast at cheapthings.com, podcast at cheapthings.com. Email us your questions and we'll be happy to answer them uh, coming up here soon. Thanks for listening to the Sheep Things podcast. Stay connected to our website, Facebook page, or sign up to follow us on a podcast service to get updates. We want your feedback, so you can email us at podcast at sheepthings.com 
for suggestions or comments. Thank you and see you later.